at Hope of Christ, we stand for the reading of God's word. So I invite you, if you're able, to stand with us. This is 2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Megath, Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hedadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So admittedly, chapter 8 here is a rather strange chapter, isn't it? I mean, not strange... Not really strange, interesting, though. Strange in how uninteresting it is. I mean, on the one hand, 
It's all about battles and victories and spoils of war. I mean, there's a lot in here that could have been stretched out to capture the imagination of every 12-year-old boy who struggles to read the Bible. How many chapters could have been written on all of these battle plans and all of the things? And what in the world is going on with hamstringing horses? And what are the two lines of Moabites? What is going on? I feel like we're not getting enough information here. I don't know if there's a, a more boring way to record these battles than what the author does here. It seems like it's just a bunch of information. It's sort of a wrap-up of David's life thus far. And in one sense, it really is. That's exactly what is going on here. In fact, when you look at the last paragraph here at verse 15, and you compare it to other paragraphs in First or Second Samuel, you see a pattern. You realize This actually is literally a technique that the author uses to move on to another section. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 7, verses 15 to 17, a very similar paragraph is given describing or summarizing Samuel's uh, work as a judge, as the last judge of Israel. And then chapter 8 begins a focus on Saul rather than Samuel. And then also in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 14, verses 47 to 52 is another summary section, not of Samuel or David, but of Saul, the first king of Israel. And that's an even briefer account of some of the victories that Saul had, and then also of Saul's own household. And then chapter 15 transitions into looking at David. And then from chapter 15 of 1 Samuel to chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, we have seen basically the rise of King David. And so chapter 8, chapter 9 will begin a new focus. Maybe not immediately, but things shift after chapter 8. And so then, does that mean that we should just skip chapter 8? It's just sort of a transition. It's a really long and then Obviously, uh, from the fact that we just read it, you know my opinion on that. Uh, I don't think we should skip the passage just yet. We remember in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us that everything written in the Old Testament is written for our instruction. Now, maybe it's not all going to give us the same instruction, but everything, if if the Holy Spirit has deemed it worthy of being included in the Old Testament, then It's written down for our instruction. Now, not everything is written uh, with our 21st century sensitivities in mind. So often we read things in the Old Testament and think that we ought to sit in judgment over what we're reading because we're much more evolved uh, emotionally and culturally and uh, we're, we're, we're so much smarter and better than the people used to be back then. They were such barbarians. But is that really the case? Is that really all we get to do with this passage is look at it and say, oh, at least I'm not as bad as David. He seems like an angry fellow. I think there's something here for us that we can see even as we come to the end of this season in David's life. And while we don't want to turn this passage or any Old Testament passage into a 
how can I find my inner David? Uh, We do certainly want to see how, as followers of Christ, how can we learn from this passage? And so uh, this chapter breaks down somewhat easily, even if it's not straightforward verse by verse, but we see three focuses, three foci. Uh, We see God's victory for David. We see God's provision through David. And we see God's character in David. So first, let's look at God's victory for David. We can see uh, that this is one of the points that the author is making because twice he repeats a phrase. Did you notice the phrase in verse 6 and in verse 14? And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. In other words, even as, even as the writer is sort of summarizing all of these battles and summarizing David's victory, he wants us to not ever miss the fact that it was the Lord who gave victory to David wherever he went. The passage isn't so much supposed to be a chronological uh, layout of first he fought these people, then he fought these people, then he fought these people. It's more of a geographical layout, and it's not even in order geographically. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 8, geographically, every nation on every side of Israel is mentioned and defeated. And so i got to try to remember to do this for your view. So I think that's west, but you think that's east, right? Am I right? Am I pointing east for you all? Okay, thanks. I need this because I'm left-handed and I get it wrong anyway. All right, so the Philistines, they're sort of southeast of Israel. They're along the Mediterranean Sea. Moab is sort of east. Am I doing this right? Moab is... Philistine is southwest. Actually, I did write that correctly. I just said it wrong. Again, this is how my left-handed brain works. All right. So Philistine, southwest, which is over here. This is hard. All right. So Philistine, southwest, over here, Mediterranean Sea. Moab, southeast, on the other side of the Dead Sea. So you got Israel in the middle. Here, I'll be Israel. (laughs) So then you've got, let's see, you've got Zobah is way north of Israel, almost directly north. Sort of between Zobah and Israel is uh, Damascus and Syria, so they're also north of Israel. Uh, Hamath, uh, so Toy and his son Joram, they're even further north. So you've got Zobah and Syria, and then Hamath is all the way up on the Euphrates River. Edom is to the southeast of Moab. Ammon is east and north of Moab. Amalek is directly south, sort of between Philistia and Edom. And so you get the picture. Once you see it laid out, you realize that this is, this is God's keeping the very promise he made in chapter 7 to David, is it not? In chapter 7, David, uh, David receives from the Lord the promise that through David, Uh, God will give rest to Israel from all of their enemies. He says, violent men will afflict them no more. I give you rest from all your enemies. And here in chapter 8, 
the writer is sort of intentionally laying that out in a very summarized fashion. The Lord has kept his promise. Even that little throwaway statement of, and David made a great name for himself when he freed the salt lands from the Edomites. Even that was a promise from chapter 7. I will make your name great, David. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I mean, if God promised to do all those things, it seems like, it's, seems like it was David that did it all. I mean, the, the author also wants you to see that David is active throughout all of this. In fact, the repeated verb throughout is, uh, I like it in the King James and Old English because it's smote, and we just don't smite enough people anymore. I like that. But, but you get it in defeated But David defeated the Philistines in verse 1. David defeated Moab in verse 2. David defeated Hadadezer in verse 3. David defeated the Syrians in verse 5. David defeated the Edomites in verse 13. So even as we read this passage and we see the Lord has given the victory to David, we also see in this passage David continues to follow the Lord in faithful obedience. God gives the victory, and David is described as doing a lot of the work. These are not mutually exclusive ideas that God is providing the victory and calling his people to active obedience. It's not even just an Old Testament idea. In, in Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. He's talking to people that are Christians. He's not saying, make yourself a believer, make yourself a Christian now. But he's saying, now that you're a Christian, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul sees it's appropriate to say, work out your salvation, be active, be an active member in your Christian life. But remember, it's God who's working in you. You work out your salvation. It's God who is at work in you. These aren't mutually exclusive ideas. We are called on to live faithful lives. We don't, just, we don't get to just say, look, if God wanted me to be done with that sin, he would take care of it. Obviously, if I'm still struggling, God doesn't care so much, or at least he's happy for me to be struggling in it. You know, that's not, that's not how Christianity works. God says, yeah, I am alive. I am working. I am working in you. Now you Make better choices. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I've used this example before. I was going to use my iPad, but I thought, you know, what are the odds that it dies when I do that? So, you know, if I have this bottle of water, maybe I even loosen the lid a little bit, and I put it here on the edge, and I say, you know, God is powerful. God is able. If he wants this bottle of water not to fall off the pulpit, 
he is able to keep it from falling off. If it falls off, obviously it's God's will. And so I will pray, God, keep the bottle of water on the pulpit. Don't let it fall. You could stop it, God. I know you can. You can stop the bottle of water, God. Well, obviously it wasn't God's will for the bottle of water not to fall off the pulpit. There's nothing we can do. No one's going to change the will of God. He is sovereign over all that he has created. It's his eternal decree. None can change it. Do we approach our Christian life that way? God, change this in me. Well, no, I mean, I, I don't want to be involved in it. I would like to just wake up and have it changed. I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to take up my cross every day and follow you. Just make me, just make it different. Make me, make me a servant. The author at least wants us to see David is faithful and David trusts God and it's God ultimately who gives the victory. Obviously, these passages relate plenty of questions that we have, again, because of our 21st century sensitivities. If you have questions about some of those details that are in the passage, I encourage you to come to the adult Sunday school hour right after church. Uh, I will be more than happy to talk through some of these strange passages. I do want to point out that Toy, king of Hamath, does show us that there, there are always options in coming up against God's kingdom, coming up against the Lord's anointed. You don't have to be the enemy of the Lord's anointed. You could sue for peace. You could seek a treaty. Now, is this a sign that Toy and Joram have dedicated themselves to the Lord's anointed and to the God of the covenant? Probably not. But it is at least recorded for us in this fashion so that we see that God's goodness to his anointed is meant as a blessing for the earth if they will receive it. You know, Psalm 2 that we read for our passage, you know, the nations rage against God and against the Lord's anointed. But in the end, The call is not to just rant against the nations. It's actually a call for them to repent. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know, speaking of things that we consider paradoxical, the Bible is never afraid of saying, God is a God of wrath. So you should come to him and be comforted. Blessed are all who take refuge in this God. What we see in this chapter is God's keeping his promise to protect and deliver and give victory to David. And we also see God providing through David for Israel for the upcoming temple which David's offspring will build. We see God providing through David for Israel. See, not only do the surrounding nations no longer pose a threat to David and to Israel, they actually begin sending tribute to David and to Israel. 
He receives gold shields from Hadadezer's armed guard in verse 7. And receives much bronze from the cities of Zobah in verse 8. He receives silver and gold and bronze from Hamath. He receives silver and gold from Edom and Moab and the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. And we're told in verse 11, these the king dedicated to the Lord. So all these things are coming to David, and he's setting them all aside for God. He's not using them. He's not you know, expanding his castle. He's setting all of it aside. He's dedicating it all to the Lord. And I think uh, this week as I read this passage, it was the first that I was sort of convicted because, I mean, how would you respond? Remember, chapter 7 begins with David saying, I want to build you a temple, God. I want to build a house for God. It's a great, honorable thing. And God says, no, I don't want you to build me a temple. Your offspring will build a house for me, but not you. Now, if I had come up with this great idea and I thought, look at how, and I wanted to do this for God. And God says, No. I'd be like, no. Like, no. No, you will not build a house for me. In fact, your son will build me a house. Oh, okay. Cool, 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 cool. Cool. All right. All right then. Well, I guess God wants me to just keep building my house. Because I was going to build his house, but he said, no. Apparently that's my son's job. I'll just keep. There's a new chariot I'd like. It's, you know, sort of a hybrid model. You know, isn't it interesting? David isn't resentful or petty when God says, no, that's not for you to do. David doesn't see it as not his problem. His attitude is one of complete submission to God. If I can't build the house, at least I can provide for the house. If I can't do that, at least I can do whatever it is I can do. I'll, make it, I'll at least make sure that as, if, as much as it's up to me, my son will lack nothing when it comes time to actually build this house. Everything is dedicated to the Lord, to the house that David will not build. It's an example of absolute devotion to God, regardless of circumstances and opportunities. David is devoted to God, even when he's absolutely sure this opportunity is God's will. And God says, actually, it's not. David says, not a problem. I'll follow you anyway. And the bottom line is, it's the Lord providing, isn't it? I mean, the Lord had granted all the success. The Lord is the one providing it. All the stuff that's coming in isn't because of David. It's because of the Lord's hand being upon David. What else could David do with it? David's heart for God in this moment is one of devotion and gratitude and love. He recognizes, even as we try to recognize when we uh, collect the tithes, he recognizes that everything comes from God. This all belongs to God. How could I possibly be selfish with this? David's heart for God's people 
And for his work as the king reflects this same thing. We see in David the character of God in the closing paragraph. Now, as I pointed out, and especially if you take time to look at those other paragraphs in uh, 1 Samuel 7 and in 1 Samuel 14, you'll see how closely this closing paragraph mirrors those. And so you see that it definitely is a tool to transition to the next phase of David's life. And sure, there's questions that we raise. Why does it end telling us that David's sons were priests? How can the sons of Judah, the line of Judah, be priests? And it's not necessarily that David was infiltrating the Levitical uh, order, but more likely that David had appointed his sons in sort of chaplain-type settings, maybe in the castle, maybe in the military service. These, they simply served in a very ministerial way in David's household. I think the most important of those sentences is how it begins. In verse 15, David reigned over Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. David is described as administering justice and equity to all the people of Israel. Literally, The words are justice and righteousness. David served with justice and righteousness. He administered justice and righteousness to the people of God. In Deuteronomy 17, God gives law for when there will be a king in Israel. He says in Deuteronomy 17, when you, this is Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return in that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children, in Israel. Is the author trying to tell us that David was perfect at this point in his life? He's not. He is certainly trying to tell us that at this point, in David's service as king, he exercised his role in a proper way. His service as king was more characterized by faithfulness and righteousness and justice 
than it was by unfaithfulness or injustice or unrighteousness. David sought to do what was good and right by the people that God had entrusted to him in the station that God had placed him according to the calling by which and for which the God, that God had called him. David, let me say it again. David sought to do what was just and right by the people that God had entrusted to him in the station that God had placed him according to, to the calling by which God had called him. Now, I am no king of Israel. I know. But y'all are no kings of Israel either. But can we recognize that each of us, you and me together, we each, we have a calling from God. We may not have the same calling. Some of you are mothers. Some of you are daughters. I'm neither. But we have a calling and a station that God has put us in. Uh, We have people that have been entrusted to us. Are you pursuing what is just and right on their behalf or for yourself. David is not alone in being known for being known and loved and chosen and protected by God. Yes, David is the Lord's anointed, but it's he alone, loved by God, chosen by God, delighted in by God. Are not all of us as God's children loved, chosen, delighted, and called You and I, we live in the exact place that God has determined for us to live. Do you know that? Uh, Acts 17 says that God has determined the exact time and space for you and me to occupy. Psalm 139 tells us that uh, every one of our days has been numbered out by God. We, our existence has been determined and called and delighted in by God. Everyone in your life is where they're supposed to be by God. He has allotted their time and place. Some people have been placed under your authority or entrusted to your care like children or subordinates at work. Some people are your equals, your husbands, your wives, your neighbors and co-workers. Some people have been entrusted to you as your superiors, those who are, have authority over you, your parents, your bosses. All of these people have been entrusted to you in some way by God. Do you seek justice and righteousness for each of them? Do you act with justice and righteousness toward them? Are you just and right in your dealings at work, at home, with your neighbors? David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and equity to all his people. If today was a summary statement day for your life and tomorrow a chapter changes, can you look back and say, I have worked with justice and righteousness toward everyone in as much as it was up to me? And if not, what a wonderful day to start a new chapter.
what a great day to close the book on that chapter and say, Lord, I haven't. You have. You have been just and righteous. You've been compassionate and gracious to me. Everything that has come successful to my hands has been by your hands. Every provision has come from you. God, would you make me a just and righteous lover of others? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is in you, and because it is in you, it is in us to live with justice and righteousness. You show us in Micah that you've told us all along what is good and what you require of us. It is simple to, to do justice to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. God, may we be individuals whose children, whose whose parents, whose neighbors, whose co-workers are blessed just because We interact with them. They feel the justice and righteousness of God. Because we seek to follow you in loving them well. God, you have conquered our sin on the cross through your son, Jesus. You will one day come and conquer remaining sin in the world when you send your son. Would you please continue your conquering work in our hearts that we might delight in you, recognizing that it is through you and from you alone that all victory comes, that your provision is only from your gracious hand and that you call us to justice and righteousness in the name of Jesus. Amen.